Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 15, History Panic. Recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Morningstar. Presented by Jason Morningstar and Kenneth Height. Icelandic, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, uh, are you ready? I'm ready, man. I am, I'm so ready. I'm ready. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Uh, so, we'll introduce ourselves. I'm Kenneth Height, uh, role-playing game writer, designer uh, in the historical gaming field. Mostly my games are History and, so Trail of Cthulhu, uh, Day After Ragnarok, uh, various um, uh, uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages products, uh, uh, Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade, stuff like that. I don't believe that I've done any pure historical role-playing uh, writing, although a lot of my work is informed by or set in, for lack of a better term, history. And I'm Jason Morningstar. I'm a co-founder of Bully Pulpit Games, and uh, Ken and his ideas are slowly corrupting me. My most recent game is about the settlement of Australia, but it's set in space, so uh, people will play it. <laughs> uh, 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 but I've also uh, written uh, more uh, stridently historical role-playing games like Grey Ranks, and history, I think, informs pretty much everything I yeah, do. Right. So, so uh, we're here to talk about history, panic, and history panic. Exactly. Um, and I know that uh, you're probably coming from a lot of different backgrounds. We have, I know, a, a trained professional historian here who's coming from the point of view of someone who perhaps uh, his, his heart aches when he sees that go tragically wrong at the table. And I'm sure we have people here who, on the other side, when confronted with uh, his, his historical elements in their games, maybe worry about getting it wrong or, or worrying about looking dumb or worrying about uh, making it less fun because they don't know about... Uh, what you would find in the backseat compartment of the commander's uh, chair in the TMA-1 module connected to the space station. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, is a problem. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, uh, and other people also, um, all, I have been told this, I have never done it myself, uh, other people don't feel like if they're playing history that they have permission to change it. Which is a, an interesting point. Yeah, uh, there are people who are like, well, um, if we're playing in World War II, what if we accidentally win Stalingrad? You know, it's like Hitler's not going to come to power because you won Stalingrad in your game. But they don't feel like they have that ability. And as a result, I think, they feel more imprisoned by historical gaming than liberated by it. And in a, generally a hobby that's meant to make us feel more liberated than our normal lives, feeling imprisoned not just by a ring of Soviet steel, but also by the implacable jaws of historical materialism, it can be a, a tough uh, road uh, for people to hoe. So I guess those would be the sort of the general problems of historical gaming that people have, have noticed. Yeah, I think so. And of course, we'll, we'll open it up for conversation as well and then see if you guys have particular issues that you want to address. But I bet we're going to hit a bunch of them because I know that Ken and I individually have seen many of these things at our own table. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, it, it, the, the idea that history has to be rigid, uh, that, that things happened in a particular way and that we need to honor that uh, is obviously a fallacy since this is an escapist medium and we're putting our own fictional gloss on everything we do. I, I think that it's fair for a group to have a discussion about that and I think it can be fun, I know it can be fun to say we're going to we're going to play the days before the Kennedy assassination, and it's going to end with uh, a bullet hitting JFK. And uh, within that sort of a framework, if everybody's on board, that can be really fun. It's probably more fun to say, uh, and by the end of this, a bullet will be fired. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, and see where it goes. Now, with the understanding that you're going to be flexible about reality because you're creating your own. Yeah, the, 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 the notion that a lot of players um, seem to have, and again, this is people who've talked to me about it, it's not something that I've uh, done, is the notion that, well, if we're doing a game of um, uh, the Puritans in New England and we've already added vampires, we can't add anything else. We can't <laughs> change it. We can't kill Cat and Cotton Mather. We can't do whatever. Which on the, on the surface is crazy. Yeah. Right? You've just added vampires. <laughs> But, but on the other hand... They avoided the warranty, guys. I, I think that what they may be uh, coming up against is the sort of the subconscious feeling that the reason we're playing in Puritan New England is to play in Puritan New England and to have that same constraint 
not just socially and not just sort of technologically, but also historically. We want to be in 1690 Massachusetts, or else we wouldn't have played in 1690 Massachusetts. We'd be playing in, you know, elf land, wherever the hell. And so the, the notion that you want to be constrained by history, you want to have that boundary, then can turn into a prison wall, I think, in, in, in people's thinking. And I guess the only really useful advice from my end of the table is, you know, is, is basically the old Henny Youngman advice. Um, uh, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. Uh, if you find that historical role-playing game is too, constraint, too, too constraining, too painful, too annoying, you know, stop annoying yourself. Stop constraining yourself. Stop painting yourself with the game and find the things in history that you came there to play and maybe turn those elements up a little bit and turn the the historical inevitability down a notch. Don't turn it down to ridiculous levels. Don't say, you know, we're not going to play in Massachusetts because Massachusetts is more awesome than anywhere else that you could be playing in a magical fantasy imaginary world. But but do take the part of that that was the reason you were going to have fun there and not the part of that that is preventing you from having the fun you wanted to have. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, that it's also important to, to be gracious. Uh, uh, if, if you're coming to a game with subject matter uh, expertise, it's probably a good idea to recognize that you can, you can use that for good or for evil, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so use it for good. Uh, an exa- a personal example. So in writing Grey Ranks, which is about the Warsaw Uprising of 1944, I did a tremendous amount of research, and I just feel like that setting and that time and place is in my bones. And when I play Grey Ranks, everybody gets it wrong, right? Everybody, everybody does crazy things that were ahistorical and could not happen, just were an impossibility in that time and place. Um, I, I played a game where somebody said, well, I'm, I'm going to go to the, we're going to go through the German lines and go to the German opera. And, and in my heart, it, and this is in October of 1944, there is no opera happening in, in Warsaw at that point. Uh, and uh, so, you know, in my heart, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. We, that's, oh. And then I reeled it back in and realized that this was not going to affect anybody's enjoyment of the game but my own if I'm a pedant about it and say, oh, actually, you're dumb. And that's not how things went. So pick something different to do because I'm going to tell you why that's impossible. Instead, I said, that's great. Let's set a scene at the opera where you can kill that guy. And it was fine. And the the game went on, and the only person who had any anxiety about it was me. And I let it go, right? I'm sure you've experienced that. The the question of of player expertise or or GM expertise, in most historical settings, I know more than most of my players. But I started playing historical role-playing games or historical-based role-playing games at the University of Chicago, with you know people who were at the University of Chicago, so there was a large number of subject matter experts on a large number of subject matters, and I ran a game set in uh, Brittany in the 13th century. I think it was it was an Ars Magica game, and one of my players, you know, was a linguist, a, ling- a linguistic <laughs> student, and read Breton, which meant that he could always go to primary sources that I could not go to because I. Uh, and a uh, a political science student who reads English. And so the result was that uh, his contribution to the game had to be uh, different than the contribution of the other players who were just like, cool, Brittany, excellent. It's like Ireland, but, you know, connected to something. And so uh, what uh, I did was I brought him into the game and I said, since you are the expert on Breton culture and folklore, you are writing the handout that all the other players are going to have to know about the information. And then we ma- I made sure that his character was more connected to the land and to the local fairies than the other characters were. So whenever a question came up in-game, it would make sense for them to ask him, not me. Right. And then it's on him if the answer is, well, actually, that's a demon pig, and it's going to tear your soul out. You know, because it's like, hey, I didn't say it. Brett and Folklore <laughs> said it, man. She found a way to channel his expertise. Exactly. In a way that was going to make it more fun for everybody. Use it to build the game as opposed to, 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 to butt heads and have a, a dick measuring contest over it. Because right. that, you know, it, it's fun to, to, to fight a duel, but it's not as much fun if the goal was not to fight a duel, but to actually set up a shared play space. So let me ask you a question, Ken. Let's say that uh, you're, uh, you're joining a game uh, that's set in a particular time and place that you know very little about, 
and you know that the other players are pretty conversant in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is an impossibility. It could happen. <laughs> but uh, uh, So what, what can you do as a player to reduce your own anxiety or to be comfortable there? Or what can the other players do to help you feel comfortable with that? I, I think that um, as the player who knows the least about a setting, um, you should know as much as is going to make your uh, fun smoothest, right? You, you sure. stop... And once it becomes homework and stops becoming fun, stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe the other players can say, "Hey, watch this awesome, uh, you know, you know, let's watch this awesome movie about uh, the, the 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 time of troubles. You know, the, the Polish knight hussars riding around the giant wings on their uh, cavalry horses, or read this one, you know, book, uh, this one novel. If I've got that much uh, attention to spare for for something where there's no movie and there's no novel and it's all just his history." Um, find something that the player does know about and start working from there. So it's like we're setting a game in the South Pacific in the 1700s, and maybe I don't know an awful lot about that. And I say, was that like Captain Cook? And they're like, well, it's 75 years after Captain Cook, but that's a good start. And Captain Cook, there's these four guys who are sort of like Captain Cook, and they came along before, and blah, blah, blah. And so you, you, you provide, as the other players, you provide a trail of breadcrumbs. And as that player, you find a breadcrumb to follow, and you say... Is this like this other thing that I know? How is this like that? And in a lot of cases, in most historical settings, it's possible to play the guy who got shipped in from out of the setting and doesn't know anything. And that's often the viewpoint character Mm -hmm. in these novels or in these movies because they have to explain it to the audience. And having, you know, the one guy, you know, having Tom Cruise learn about how samurai work is more effective for a Hollywood audience than just showing a samurai movie and saying, you'll pick it up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, I'll point out that that same condition would apply if you were joining a Dragonlance campaign, too, or yeah, any right. setting with rich backstory. Yeah, any setting where mastery is rewarded. I mean, the, the, if you start playing vampire with people who've been playing vampire through the whole meta plot, and you're like, the prince of what now? Yeah. Then, you know, you pretty much either have to play the newbie vampire or you have to play the mysterious stranger who doesn't talk a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate to that. That's exactly what I did when I actually I played a human. Yeah, right. And I was like, "This is such an interesting town." Yes, good. People are all so funny. These coffee shops are open late. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's see. Uh, have, have, any, have any of you had uh, particular experiences, uh, either uh, as someone who came from the side of subject matter expertise, or came from the side of having anxiety about uh, history content in the game? Yeah. Um, let's say hypothetically you've got a fellow who's studied a lot of history, mm-hmm. and the rest of his gaming group hypothetically didn't. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Uh, and if he's in charge of telling the stories, and what he likes is to go into history and say, this would be great if... He spends a lot of time thinking, okay, how much history do I expect these guys to have to learn to make this useful, and how much would it just make my game? Well, um, in general... The job of the of the GM, whether he knows a lot of history or no history, is to make the story interesting to the players. And if you know your players, you know what is going to interest them. So if you know that your players are interested by stabbings, you make sure that however you twist your history produces a lot of stabbings. If what you know that they're interested in is courtly romance and intrigue, you make sure that however you twist your history produces a lot of courtly romance and intrigue. And then you make the explanation for why history is different dependent on doing a lot of really awesome stabbing and or courtly romance and intrigue, and then the information becomes a reward as opposed to a punishment, right? And there's a good benchmark for that in that uh, if you sort of get that equation wrong, people will get up and leave, right? Yeah. They don't want to play with you, <laughs> right? So, so keep that in mind. Um, but uh, yeah, that seems like a sort of a don't be a dick situation. Right? Well, it's not even a dick. You're not necessarily you. You have something that you really enjoy, mm-hmm. and your players may or may not enjoy it. And you're like, well, surely everyone is as interested in Imperial Japanese battleship diplomat as I am. <laughs> and you say, here is going to be an awesome game in which their force mix was slightly altered, so the Battle of the Coral Sea. Go- and then you start getting that, and you're like, oh my God, someone doesn't care about the Battle of the Coral Sea. <laughs> what does our country come to? Uh, you're, you're, you're just shocked. You're not being a dick. But the time you're a dick is like, you will sit here and you will listen to the goddamn Battle of the Coral Sea because we are not going to play this Aboriginal Dreamtime magic game without it. And then they're saying, we were just here because we think kangaroos are magic and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that is so definitely a, 
a social issue at that point that you <laughs> yeah. probably need to resolve. But if you sort of are, are sussing out your players and you're like, you know, they are all big fans of the Bismarck and the Atlantic War, but the Pacific War, then you can sort of sneak it in that way. It, it, it's really just about knowing your players or knowing your audience and, and playing to them first and playing for yourself second. I mean, any fun you have alone and you can't tell anyone, that is wanking by definition. <laughs> And I think it's important to point out this is predicated on trust. What we're really talking about here is uh, being able to communicate with the people that you're, you're gaming with and knowing them well enough to know what they enjoy and what's going to cause them some anxiety and finding ways to bring in the stuff that they love and to mitigate the stuff that maybe you love but that they don't. Yeah. I, I have a good, a good example of that again from, from my, my home group that I think I told in another panel, uh, but I'm going to tell it again because it's a wonderful story that, that illustrates this. So uh, it's a sort of somewhat pulpy game set in the 30s, and there's a guy who's the, the sort of stiff upper lip, stalwart British badass. And they're in Africa, and as the game master, it occurs to me that it would be a very, very dramatic arc for this character if he developed river blindness. Because he's all about physicality, and he's all about being, you know, mastering his physical environment. But what happens if he's slowly going blind? So I tell Patrick... Uh, you know, the doctor says you've got river blindness. You know, you're, you're going to go blind. And Patrick looks at me and says, no, I don't. <laughs> End of discussion. Uh, and that was, you know, I had reached the, the limit of my game master's power, uh, and we had a social issue that needed to be resolved. And uh, the thing that I was very excited about about that setting in that time uh, was not what he wanted, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the general rule is just be, be aware of when your players are pushing back and make sure you have an eject button handy or you have a way to reroute the game into something that they do like. I mean, the whole point is to reward uh, everyone for participating. So, yeah, you know, a lot of uh, gaming advice always comes down to that. But in, in setting design and setting construction, I think that there's a special responsibility to, to, to pay attention to what, you know, what, the, what, the, what puts butts in seats, really. So um, I know both of you guys have done trailers for the Hulu scenarios. Uh, yes, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> By an odd coincidence. <laughs> uh, I love the black drop. Thank you. Uh, how do you balance how much historical research you really need to do with the gameplay and the gameplay? I get that it's a little different for a home game versus being a published author. Um, and do you get nasty grams from people who say, oh, you got this wrong? I'm a PhD in the Kirkland Islands, or <laughs> that guy. You know, yeah, I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> or early London. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, well, we could probably both answer that. I don't get any nasty grams. Um, and the answer to how much history should you research, all of it. You know, yeah. uh, that's. I mean, I, I think we have very different perspectives on this because. Uh, I'm doing it for fun. I mean, I have uh, I have a job that gives me insurance, and if I get excited about the Kerguelen Islands, I can spend my free time writing a cool adventure about it, and I can take as much time as I need to do that research. Uh, and and when when I'm happy with it, and I feel that it's as solid as it's going to be, I can let it go. And I think that's a different situation from from Ken. Yeah, because because I at some point have to produce a book, and the book Hounds of London is a terrific example. I don't get nasty grams, but that's mostly because. Um, uh, I've built up a public persona based on fear and arrogance, and so <laughs> it, it discourages that kind of approach to me. But uh, the, um, the the book ends of London. Uh, there, there is literally no bottom to that well. You can research occult London forever. And I was talking to Will Heinmarch, beloved uh, fellow game designer, and I was saying, "Man, book ends of London is kicking my ass because I'm I have I have not even I have not even gotten close to being done with the research." And he looks at me and he says, um, yes, you have. <laughs> yeah, and, and so he, he, just, he just knew that at some point the, the only person that I was researching this book for was me, right? To find out, oh man, there's got to be some secret to Green Dragon Street in um, uh, Stepney or whatever. And A, there is. But, you know, <laughs> the book is going to have a finite length and Simon would like to publish it someday. And so... It, I have to stop, and and, and it's it's just that capacity to know that there is a a finite amount of time either before you have to run the game again on Wednesday, or before you have to send the manuscript off to Simon. Uh, it I will say that if you're going to publish a setting, and you certainly if you're going to publish a setting like Trail of Cthulhu that involves deep mystery, that involves specifics about a location, 
more is better. More is always better. The more you know about uh, London in the 1920s, the more you know about the arcana of book fi- book hunting, the more you know about uh, weird political and artistic cults of, of the era, the more you're going to find that you can then say, you know what, that makes a creepy amount of sense if that was Cthulhu behind it all. And there's some something deeply satisfying for me personally uh, in finding uh, things that you can pull from real history that that have these these twists to them that, that people might completely miss or will assume are fictional, but that are not. Uh, I, I love inserting those things. Um, deal, dealing with uh, Cthulhuana, you're dealing with obsessive nerds who love history anyway, so you really kind of got to get it right. Yeah, and, and, and but the other great thing about that is, you know, you're, you're hitting that appreciative audience. I mean, when I wrote the Whitechapel Black Letter scenario, I knew that, you know, there, there is nothing nerdier than ripperologists except possibly Cthulhu ripperologists. <laughs> but ev- that what that meant is every single grace note I snuck in, I knew every Easter egg I hid in that manuscript, I knew someone was going to find a chortle over. Thank you so much. The, uh, I will point out, though, that the other, the other side to that coin is that uh, for, if you're running a one-shot for your friends this weekend then there's probably a Wikipedia page that tells you everything you need to know about whatever the topic is. Because you're not going to be going into obsessive depth. Uh, and you can fake it. At least I do, all the time. Yeah, when I was running Night's Black Agents, which is, was set contemporaneously, uh, the, the players joked that it was a three-core book game. It was the gumshoe rules, it was Lonely Planet Western Europe, and it was Lonely Planet Central Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what it was. I mean, I would literally, they, they'd say where they were going. I'd look it up in Lonely Planet, we'd call up the Google map, and that would be the adventure. And it would be, oh my god, there's a faceless idol in this museum. That's terrific. I'll bet that's totally involved. <laughs> or whatever, right? Yep, absolutely. I wonder why... Uh why it is that history has this sort of privileged position. I'm a physician, uh, addiction psychiatrist. I don't think I've ever seen a game that actually felt like that the designers and their madness rules understood real mental illness, not even sort of 19th century ideas about mental illness, but other than, say, trappings, hydrotherapy, you know, straight jackets. But, I mean, it's fine. That's the, It's cinematic crazy, right, like you see in the movies. Well, real crazy is scary and depressing. Yeah. Well, real history is only... Mostly scary and depressing. <laughs> yeah, so I, so I guess that was the thing. It's, it's odd that so many people get wound up that the game history doesn't match the real history when, you know, you, you don't, I don't get a, a truck driver in a game complaining that the, the truck driving rules lack personality. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, a very good observation. And, and you could apply that to almost any discipline. You could apply it to things like race and gender, which, of course, we completely elide or, or change around uh, to suit our sensibilities uh, all the time. And nobody blinks about that. Or if they do, they, um, uh, they, they blink about it in the course of changing it in their own way to suit their own sensibilities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I think that you will get, there are certain subcultures that will whine, uh, gun uh, oh, yeah. enthusiasts. I've <laughs> never met a set of gun rules that they like unless they wrote them, and even then they're working on the revised edition that's going to finally fix that problem with the gas bl- uh, blowback uh, in the M1 Garand or whatever it is. And so there are... Uh, individual, and I actually um, uh, gamed at one point running science fiction games for people who were high energy physics students at the University of Chicago. Oh no. Or possibly the worst experience of my life running Traveler for accounting majors. Oh, <laughs> oh God, I had to start literally three interstellar wars <laughs> to keep crashing the stock market. It's like, man, you have picked the wrong stock market to invest in. It's a bad sector for that. No wonder no one else does it. <laughs> and, and so you do find that that sort of, of behavior, but I think part of it is just that um, uh, the, the 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 hobby grew out of war gamers who are his, history nerds to begin with, and there, there's that settler effect, right? It's why everyone in Boston talks with an East Anglian accent, even though none of them have come from East Anglia for 400 years. It, it, everyone in role playing game talks like a history nerd, even though they may not be one because they have absorbed that from the larger culture. Those roots are deep. Yeah. And uh, that said, I want to see your game about psychology and about yeah. mental illness. You know, I mean... Psychiatry. 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 See, I'm already messing up. <laughs> You've wrecked it. I have. 
But, uh, you know, I think that there's fertile ground there for, mm -hmm. for all kinds of people who know lots of stuff to, to put their own spin on it and uh, make that into some kind of meaningful uh, experience. Yeah, and certainly someone who knows psychiatry uh, could write a humdinger of a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Uh, the guy who wrote, um, what's it called? It's, it's something like Hearts of Madness. It was, it was the one that was... Uh, Unseen Masters. Uh, Unseen, Unseen Masters. Masters. Unseen Masters, yeah. He was uh, a, a, a psychiatrist in Toronto, and he you know, knew an awful lot about it and made a very, very terrific uh, Call of Cthulhu scenario that won awards from, like, uh, psychiatric associations in Canada. So, obviously, someone else agreed with him uh, that that's how it worked. Again, I'm a humanities nerd, so I know nothing about real science. Um, but I would love to see a, a game of... Um, uh, of, of covert uh, affairs written by a bacteriologist instead of a, a spy movie buff. That would be terrific. Yeah, it would. Um, this is a question that usually always has the same answer, which is the one I hope not to hear. Uh-oh. Uh, which is... Um, Get ready. Okay. Uh, like, how do you approach it if... Say you come up with it's a high concept you're excited about, and what you have is something that nobody at the table knows anything about. Uh, you know, like, uh, right now we're starting up a Dresden Files game set in 1930s Casablanca. Which is, How does no one know anything about that? Are they all... You know the movie. Okay, then you know something about it, don't you? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, usually the response is, well, don't do that. Do something that you know. Oh, uh, no. No, 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 no. No is irrelevant. Fun is relevant. Yeah. If, if nobody knows anything and you're all having fun, you've won. If everyone knows everything and no one is having fun, you've lost. And, and if you need to know about 1930s Casablanca for some reason, I, I know of a tool that will help you. <laughs> it's, it's called... The Swiss Army Knife. No, no, it's the internet. Right? Yeah, that, right. that was it's it. Internet, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I would say that uh, the reason that you have picked 1930s Casablanca is not because of your deep interest in Moroccan sociology. I think that it may be something else. And you find that aspect of the something else that is the interesting part of it, and that's what you're selling. And so you're not selling a, a movie, you know, we're, we're, it's going to be big, uh, Saul, it's going to be set in 1940 Casablanca. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I like the setting. Is there going to be an awful lot about souks and mosques? I think and so. And the role of the ulama? Well, it's going to be a love story uh, between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Oh, I, maybe we should hit that angle in the script. I mean, that's <laughs> when you're running a role-playing game, you're hitting that angle in the script. You're not doing the, 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 the sociology of it, necessarily, unless the sociology is driving the, the, the character conflict in the first place. Plus Nazis. Plus Nazis. Oh, Nazis. So, just to riff on that a little bit, because you mentioned the, the Last Samurai earlier. So there's this, you know, high concept that you're really passionate about, and you're going to hit the fun. The players want to stab, as the game's about stabbing. But, you know, how do you balance giving them enough information to, I don't know, fake it without, I don't know, dumping too much uh, minutia on the players? Like, no, 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 a samurai wouldn't do that, that kind of a thing. I had a terrible, terrible experience at a convention game of Bushido, which of course dates me, uh, <laughs> where that's exactly what happened. Uh, I, was, uh, I was playing a, a Ronin, or I don't even know what the situation was, but I did something. I think, I, I think there was a, a woman who was, a, a, a noble woman who was in distress, and I said that I reach out my hand and I, I touch her hand. And then everyone at the table was like, no, no, you can't do that. And there was some penalty, and then, the, you know, all these bad repercussions occurred. And I was like, that just, I didn't know, you know, that, why does it have to be that way? Why me? Why, you know, and I, I was just demoralized by this, this faux pas that, you know, I... On the other hand, I mean, you know a lot more about that one Japanese medieval custom than you ever thought you were going yeah. to as a result of role playing. Yeah, now I, I mean, do. You, I mean, that's literally what would have happened in medieval Japan. Oh, sure. Kind of thing <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, uh, but at the table. Well, that means you had to kill yourself. Which I probably did. But, yeah. but uh, you know, there, there, needs to be, there needs to be space for that, right? You're, you're, and, and you need to know your players. Like, I know that my home group, I can say, hey, go look at this Wikipedia article before we play or I can say, uh, I'm going to give you a paragraph to read. Uh, and if I say any more than that, it's just not going to happen. They're not going to do it, and they don't care. And, and if I'm having a vivid uh, interior life related to the architecture of Morocco, they don't care. You know, they're, they're like, okay, North Africa, whatever. You know, where's the fight? 
And, and that's fine, because they're, the picture that they're painting in their head about this setting is totally different than mine, but ultimately it's going to come together. Uh, so uh, having an understanding of what their limits are and what brings them joy, I think will carry you far. I think one specific tool that you can use in any sort of role-playing setting, and especially that's good in a setting that they're not going to be immediately familiar with, take an entire session for character generation for all the characters. And then when they say, can I play a Ronin, you go to them and say, yeah, you can play a Ronin, and here's the specific advantages and disadvantages you'll want to take, and here's the specific code of conduct that will give you experience points if you follow it and subtract experience points if you don't. And you can sort of lead them by hand. And you can say, well, I want to play a magic guy. And you say, well, you can play a ninja whose magic is dependent on a pact with a demon, or you can play a shugenja whose magic is dependent on uh, the, 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 the kami, the spirits that are all around you. What's and you've fun? taught them a little bit about the setting at which they've learned in order to get an awesome power. Mm. Right? So they're, they're invested at that point, yeah. and, and you've had a chance to sort of infill their, their knowledge. And then at the end of that process, when you hand out the handout, they'll start looking for the part about Ronin or the part about Shugenja, and they'll right. say, whoa, 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 this is stuff. And then they'll come back to you, and they'll say, can my Ronin be mad at um, uh, the, the Haike clan? And you're like, yes, 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 yes yeah. yeah, and at that point, you're, you're, your work is done, yeah. right? Because they, they are invested in the setting, they're invested in their character, they're going to want to learn more, yeah. right? And and, 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 the, and the other thing is it lets you head stuff off at the pass. You're like, I want to play, you know, a, you know, a, a monk with, with magic powers. And it's like, well, Steve, often I've noticed that you solve problems by uh, boarding up the room and setting it on fire, and that's really not going to work for a monk in this setting. Do you still want to play a monk, or would you rather play this character class that boards things up and sets them on fire? <laughs> And, there's a, and they'd say, there's that in medieval Japan? And oh, hell yes, there is, because everything in Japan can be set on fire. <laughs> and you'd say, you know, that sounds better. And then you'd say, and you can, you know, have a psychic dream vision or something so that he can still feel like he's playing a psychic. I mean, you, you work with your players, and if, they're, if you can see down the road that this is just going to get them in trouble because they're, they're going to be the kind of samurai that keeps touching women, then That's me. you need to set it up in advance that, that they can either play a character who's allowed to touch a uh, noble woman in distress or knows that this is going to be a great story moment for them in that way. And, and you'll be just, just, you'll have that much forewarning and you'll have let the characters buy into the setting. I mean, there's a brilliant, brilliant game called uh, Weapons of the Gods by uh, Arshon Bergstrom that literally monetizes learning the setting. Because when you learn the setting and you, you, you buy advantages with setting, and so if you've gotten sort of the Yang Emperor as an advantage, you've read the little squib about the Sword of the Yang Emperor, and you know that you're going to have to go to these three places to look for it. And it, it's just brilliant. I mean, it, it's like if, you know, you couldn't take um, uh, Overconfident in GURPS without reading about, um, uh, you know, pirate war tactics or something. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Uh, Weapons of the, of the Gods. It's, it's phenomenally good. It's by EOS Press. It's probably grossly out of print now, although it may be in PDF, because everything is in PDF. It's set in sort of a, a abstracted version of Warring States China, as are so many things. There is a new version of it coming out because they no longer have the license to the manga oh, okay. that it was based on. Right. So now it's called Weapons of the... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Legends of the Wu. That's it. Right, Legends of the Wu. Okay, fantastic. As, li as long as Arshan is still monetizing the setting, then it's still going to be a terrific example. Well, as long as whatever lesser talent they've brought in is still monetizing the setting, then... If they didn't ditch that mechanic. Jerks. I hate them. Those guys. <sighs> other questions, other comments about uh, History Panic? I mean, I know it's also the question, but I've had the same problem you had with London. What my problem is, is I know too much. I mean, having said anthropology and history, like, when I rate the religion on a world, I just crash. <clears throat> because I know... I know too much, and it's hard for me to find that balance between realism and fantasy, and it's that getting myself to learn to enough is enough. That's always been my panic, is knowing when to stop. How about the, the guys you play with? Are they helpful in um, telling you to Some of them were, some of them are not. Like one of the, I had one great friend back in the day who also studied Japanese history, so he was a fantastic person to play that kind of style with. Mm -hmm. but. Like, I unfortunately might have been one of the people that would have ostracized you, and I would apologize in advance if 
my karma was there at the table. Your karma was there. <laughs> oh, it was there. I, I felt it. He recognizes me now. <laughs> Since that's what I studied. Um, but, yeah, so that's, I, I've had that problem of just, like I ran, I don't know, last, earlier this year, trying to do a, a pulp uh, style campaign and set in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's just, I went nuts on researching 1930s Atlanta, and nobody cared but me. Well, as long as you didn't, you know, um, test them on it, I don't no, know I, that, I mean, I mean, if you're having fun doing the research, there's no such thing as too much research. Okay. It's if the, and as long as the players are having fun in the game, then you, you tell that can I call you and tell my wife that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the, the like the example that I gave, where I was uh, you know castigated at this table because I'd made a, a social faux pas that I was unaware of, I think there's probably a there's a very gentle and uh, easy way to and respectful way to handle that at the table because clearly that's an important moment in the campaign. Like I, I my character should not do that, and rather than make a big deal of it, probably. The, the uh, compassionate thing to do would be to say, let's take a, hold on a second, actually your dude probably wouldn't do that, let's just retcon that, explain explain that piece of the setting that you weren't aware of, and then you can make a choice. Yeah. Which doesn't hurt anything, you know, and uh, makes me happy because then I know more, and I don't have to look like an ass, and makes you happy because you get to tell me that. Yeah. So, you know, it's compassion, you know, being respectful of others, and I think that that that's uh, what it boils down to in a case like that. And, and in terms of crashing uh, when you're making something up or you're creating something because of in-world knowledge that you have, one way to avoid that is to look at someone who did it well enough, right? And you say, well, James Claybell in, in uh, Shogun, is, is, he's a little off, but it's acceptable. I'd, I'd allow that, you know, if I weren't me. And then, so you say, all right, how does he present that? What are his tools and techniques? Or you look at, um, uh, you know, it's not like there's a shortage of Japan-influenced fantasy out there. So you find some piece of it that you find generally acceptable. And you say, well, there's these nine things that I'm enjoying pointing out are wrong on the message boards, but it didn't actually hurt my enjoyment of the novel or the, or the manga or whatever it happens to be, right? Yeah. So you say, this is obviously how far I can go without... Mm -hmm turning into something that all men hate and hunt down with torches. So when I'm designing a game, or, or, or religion for a game, if that's your, your field, I will go just this far. Or maybe what you can do is say, it, you know, obviously it's realism that is my, you know, burr in the neck, so I'm going to go for hyper-realism, hyper-surrealism, crazy stuff that would never happen, and that's what Cthulhu is for, right? It's like, well, if these people are worshipping Neolothotep, they're not going to follow our puny human understanding of anthropology. They're going to have crazy anthropology that exists on Yedith, or whatever. And so, the fact that they don't make any actual sense as, a, as an actual cult would operate, makes it fun. kind of a bonus, really. Right, it makes it even scarier when, right. you, hand, when you wave the hands, right? Mm -hmm. You don't understand. No. It's like, yeah, I mean, the, one of the great things that I used to say to the, to the players who knew more about me than, you know, Egyptology or, or oh God, I've run... University of Chicago is a great place to learn to fake it. Um, that's what I did. That's how I got a master's degree. But they, um, uh, but but when when they would say something like that's that's very weird that this tomb doesn't have a transverse chamber. I mean, all of them have transverse chambers. I said, yeah, that is weird. Yeah, you is. have no idea why. <laughs> you, maybe your radiocarbon dating is off, or maybe something else is going on. And meanwhile, there's a note in my GM's notes: look up transverse chambers. this <laughs> way. <laughs> Find out what did happen to it, and, and, and just bluff, right? You know, I mean, I, I, I think that that works a lot of the time. Um, if it's more fun to have a mystery than it is to say, oh well, what actually happened is that there was a lot of cobwebs that grew up and obscured the transfer chamber. But thanks to your superior Egyptological knowledge, you found it. Now we know. Good for you. Good job. You're the special one, yeah. jerk. <laughs> Nobody wants to play with that guy. Yeah, hate him and his transverse but, chamber. But it's true. I mean, in a, in a game where you have a, a game master who has secrets behind the curtain, you know, just uh, wing it. Uh, I, I ran a game last night where uh, this was actually a, a LARP. It was a physical game. But there was a, the, the, it was a totalitarian kind of setting, and, and they were all supposed to be standing up. And one of the, one of the players pulled out a chair and sat down. And so uh, I, I called her to me and I said, you're not allowed to sit down. And, and later in the game, I realized that, that the, the person probably needed to sit down yeah. and that that was not an appropriate thing for me to do. So I called another character over and I said, tell her to sit down. 
and sent them back. And it terrified them. They had no idea why they were getting these crazy instructions about standing up and sitting down when it was just me trying to you know, do a favor to somebody whose knees were hurting. Uh, and then I wrote it up and called them Stanford Prison Experiment. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, the, the mystery was there, and, it, uh, and I worked with it. And it, made, uh, it made the game better, even though it had a very prosaic explanation, ultimately. I'm not sure if that is entirely relevant. Kind no, of relevant. It's, it's probably made, it can be made relevant. Yeah, it was me being cruel, so. Yeah. Good. Does anyone else have any more questions or observations on history panic or history or panic? Something I tend to have a bit of difficulty with when running a historical setting or something like that is conveying info to the players beyond here's this big handout, read it, you know. And, and I, uh, an example being uh, Victorian, Victorian, Victorian uh, you know, uh, social behavior and, and, and that type of thing. Like, you know, what, what goes on in the summer house type of thing, and, like a castle fall can see the game. Mm -hmm. um, something I, 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 it's actually kept me from running a game like that because I know my the majority of my players don't have that information. I don't want to just <clears throat> hear, read this type of thing. Or, or. So, something that, that I do, uh, if I'm being a game master in a, in a setting like that, is to do a lot of scene painting, can convey the setting through description, uh, and make those actually social moments. So if they're going to enter the house, maybe they, for, for whatever reason, enter through the servants' quarters, and they, they, get, to, they get a little vignette of what the servants are doing that, that implies status and propriety. Uh, and that's just a, you know, sort of embedded in the fiction at that point. Uh, another way to, to sort of paint these things without you know, passing out uh, uh, handouts is have NPCs and not evil NPCs, not problem NPCs, sympathetic NPCs, NPCs they look up to or are getting things from their patron or their dependent, do it first, right? That's how, how we learn cultural behavior. So, you know, you're waiting to enter the, the summer house, your carriage is up, up on the lawn with the other carriages, and oh, here comes Lord Bittescombe, uh, who has, it was so nice as to give you those excellent elephant guns for your expedition. And here he comes, oh, look, he's dropping his... Uh, he's having his servant drop his visiting card into the salver. He's shaking hands with um, uh, the the master of the house, and then he's going into the parlor to to wait uh, while the you know. And, and so you just sort of watch Lord Bittescombe do his little thing, and now you have a little social vignette. You've painted the scene. You've gotten to describe some of the setting, but you've also shown them what proper behavior is. Because look, this very proper NPC who has done us nothing but good mm -hmm. has done it. So maybe it behooves us to do that. I mean, you're, you're, the, the problem with the king puncher is going to be a problem, but that guy is going to make trouble regardless, and you just don't play with him. <laughs> um, but players who want to be in a Victorian world or, or want to be a part of a Japanese samurai culture, you have someone come along, and, and if there'd been a, you know, an, a, a wizened old uh, sword master with you, and, 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 and you see that even though she's, you know, the gym can say, you can see that his heart is torn. And he wishes to touch her, but his samurai honor is too great. Right. Perfect. And then you'd be, oh, my samurai honor is also very great. I better not touch Right. And so something like that, that, that paints how behavior works by showing NPCs do it. And if you don't make it a giant endless narration, you know, a, a Gosford Park establishing shot, then you can, um, uh, you can sort of paint these moments into the game and give them just a little heads up, right? You know, even something like, you know, the sergeant barking orders on how you're going to go over the top. That's a little instant lecture in World War I tactics. That's how you go over the top. And then you can ignore him because you've got those awesome elephant guns, but still, you know. <laughs> and the, uh, conversely, you can have the NPC who is nothing but trouble, and you get to see him uh, make all the mistakes for you. Yes, goofus and gallant as NPC. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Just have one of each. Yeah. Send them into the world. Don't do what Dudley don't does. Yeah. <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah, very Anybody else? See what a good question that was, and you didn't think you had one. A, a bad historical uh, game that well, wasn't historical, it was Oriental Adventures. But the, <laughs> it's it's yeah. barely even adventures, much yeah. less historical. <laughs> but they, they had Ada, or Edda, the, uh, yeah. and my characters, my players, did not get that concept. And they just, it, the whole idea was something was killing the Edda, and these guys 
for helping. But Talking about untouchables? Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 yeah it, and it, they just, as Americans who've grown up in the 20th century, 21st century, they didn't get that concept that they could actually, if they wanted to, they could just go up and kill these people and, it, and really nothing would happen to them. And I sh what I should have done, I should have realized, A, you know, I know my players. Uh, what I could easily have done is say, yeah, these are Edda, but, you know, the Emperor, you know, three decades ago said, look, we can't kill these guys anymore. Can't just, they have to at least, you know, they're, they're protected by the Emperor, at least to a certain extent. Something, I should have came up with something that would have actually um, made it more, I guess, palatable to the 20th century. Well, I mean, kudos to your players for accepting, you know, for having that sort of sense of social justice. I mean, way too many players thrown into a setting where you can get slaves is like, how much? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah they were like, that, they just could not get that concept, and, and like, that's crazy. I mean, it, it sounds to me like there, there's, a, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you can, you can open up some real profitable areas of social role-playing. And maybe if the game only becomes about a, a, a doomed crusade to free the uh, Edda in Japan, you, it's derailed whatever you thought the game was about. But I'll bet that game sounds like it's kind of fun. Yeah, that sounds like what your players are asking for at that point. Yeah. I mean, but... The, 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 but I, said, if, I never gave that thought. Instead, I just said, well, hell with this. I ain't going to say anymore. Right. <laughs> I came up on the campaign and went... Right, I mean, but, but the thing is, if, if, if what the players are saying is... Part of this setting makes us uncomfortable. Like, let's say you're playing Call of Cthulhu. It's in the 1920s. You're in Mississippi. A lot of that setting is going to make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And in, in Trail of Cthulhu, I say, well, there's two or three ways you can address it. You can address it like Lovecraft did and just have people of color never appear at all, which, while weird, is actually easier in 1920s Mississippi than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, or you can, you know, play sort of the way that they did in The Pulps, uh, where... You know, the, the ethnic uh, sidekick is weirdly accepted as part of the team and no one ever talks about it, which is the way that, um, uh, we, that we would kind of like our society to be now. Or you can make race a foregrounded part of the setting. And a lot of that is just going to be sort of determining where your player's comfort zone is or what kind of stories you're planning on telling. Because obviously the race uh, uh, divide in 1920s uh, Mississippi is going to produce some phenomenal horror role-playing opportunities. But if it's just going to distract the players from the horror, qual Lovecraftian face-melting, then it's going to be a different game. And so you might, like you say, you might want to just eject and say, did I say Mississippi? I meant Massachusetts. All those states sound like... <laughs> and now, now we're in safe territory. <laughs> yeah, right. Woo! Lucky, lucky that. Fortunately, there's no racism in Massachusetts. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. I mean, so, so a lot of it is, in, in a sense, I mean, I don't know your players, and so you may have been making absolutely the right decision in terms of this is going to be a, a hot-button issue and we need to sort of back around so we can just have fights with Ninja, which was the whole point of the game. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, my instinct is to say good for them. They're awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that kind of touches on another topic I've been thinking about a bit is I think there's kind of a new kind of history panic that we're seeing coming up in the hobby, which is appropriation panic. Um, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, people are worried. I say, I say get in line, man. <laughs> I mean, since the entire history of everything has been cultural appropriation, I mean, Homer was culturally appropriating a culture that wasn't his when he wrote the Trojan, when he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? You know, he's telling stories about the McKinians who were 400 years before him and on the other side of the Aegean uh, Sea. That's what, that's what adventure fiction has been forever. So it's a little late to start worrying about that. I mean, if someone is saying that I am appropriating African mythology because my take on it is, is racist or, or shallow or biased, that's a legitimate criticism, but that's a legitimate criticism regardless of what color I happen to be or what my ethnic heritage is. I mean, if someone wants to tell awesome stories about, you know, drunken fighting druids, as an Irishman, it's like, you go to it, pal. If you tell an awesome story about a drunken fighting druid, I'll be first in line to, to watch, read, or buy it. I mean, I, I think that cultural appropriation is, in general, someone just wanting to feel special in the course of the, of the discussion and put themselves up on an ability to, to, to confront the author as a, as a setting creator. And it's like, if you feel that strongly, go create your own setting. That's what the hobby's about. Yeah, I, uh, I feel pretty strongly that no culture or time period or place should be off limits uh, based on the, your identity as a creator. 
uh, I think that it's important that you be held accountable for how you use that material. And like Ken said, if you make a game that's patently racist, then you should be called out for being a racist. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't approach issues of race, identity, or gender in your games, or that you can't use existing cultures uh, if you're treating them with respect. Yeah, and another thing is that if, um, if, if people uh, are only allowed to create games based on their own ethnic heritage, then you, know, you think games are white and male now. Yeah. <laughs> you wait until the only games I can write are games that take place on the shores of the Irish Sea <laughs> or in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the, the, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be gained by engaging with... Uh, if, you're, if you're dealing with uh, a living culture, then engage with that culture. Learn from the people who practice it, who are alive now. Ask them questions, uh, typically. Yeah, read their books. Their, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, watch their movies or whatever. They're going to be primary sources that you can go to to learn about it, uh, in, including people who want to talk to you about it so that you get it right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's broadly applicable to any discipline, but uh, specifically to, to this sort of thing. So uh, you've talked about um, ways to introduce a setting to, to the players. Uh, you can you, know, you can give people handouts or you can introduce it during the game. But if you do go the way of, of you know, writing a, a page to give to, to your players, what do you think is that the most engaging way of doing that? Should we be talking about maybe what the characters know of the world or what, uh, you know, what is, it's okay to be player knowledge? And because of course your cart in the middle ages or, or even you know, further back you only have that very local knowledge. Oh, we, we may differ on this, but I'm I'm a big fan of transparency. I would I would say the things that are important to the setting, whether or not the characters are going to know them or not. Uh, the, if the players know them, it's just going to inform their play in a way that's going to make their portrayal richer and more interesting. Personally, what what I did uh, when I was running uh, games like my Ars Magica games set in you know uh, in Brittany. I wrote like three pages, and one page was the world um, uh, in 1300, and it was the world as would be understood by an educated, you know, Frenchman in 1300. It's like beyond this point, there are you know silk empires or something, but you're not really. I mean, it would go down and it would just sort of like give the broad outline of what the worldview was, and then there was a page on France, and this is more about the culture and things like that, and then one was Brittany, and it's like. Over that hill, there's a bunch of fucking fairies, and they're going to tear your heart out. <laughs> and so it was three pages, but each one of them sort of answered a different batch of questions. Yeah, I kind of like the approach of... Uh, I mean, again, I'm playing for... I was running things through University of Chicago students who are literally reading thousands of pages a week. So the fact that they had an extra 10 to read for role-playing game was like <laughs> nothing. Yeah, I kind of like the approach of... Uh, and I'm saying, well, that's, that's why you're... Uh, you know, village priest has told you there is something beyond this village. Mm -hmm. That's all he knows. Sure. That's a totally, totally valid approach. Well. Yeah. well, I think that's it for us. Yeah, I uh, think we're done. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been uh, interesting and informative for us. Too. And my apologies for uh, screwing up. I, I got delayed.